Welcome to the STR Data Lab. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the STR Data Lab. I'm Jamie Lane, Chief Economist at AirDNA Today, and I'm joined today with Madeline List, a Senior Research Analyst at Focusrite. Madeline, welcome to the show. Hey, Jamie. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So we're recording a week before the uh, Focusrite International Conference, and this is going to be going out along with the conference. But if I had to guess, uh, most of our listeners have never heard of Focusrite. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about what Focusrite is, what they do, and your role there? Yeah, absolutely. So I describe Focusrite as a market intelligence firm, so to speak, for travel and tourism, because we have hands in a lot of areas of market intelligence in that travel space, from events, conferences, webinars. We have a journalistic wing called Focus Wire that puts out editorial stories and covers the travel, travel tech spaces. And then personally, I'm in the research arm of the business. I'm a market researcher by trade. And I used to work on things like financial products and beauty. And since 2019, I've been focusing exclusively on those travel, tourism, hospitality spaces with a special focus in short-term rentals. That's great. I, in my point of view and seeing the things that you do, like it's been so amazing to sort of get another view of what's happening in the space, especially since you look at both hotels and short terminals, you've got such sort of a neat view given the sort of surveys and the sort of deeper dives that you guys do. So maybe you could start with just what is the difference between a typical short-term rental guest and hotel guest that you've seen in your research? Sure. And I really do get excited to bring in both perspectives. I think sometimes there can be a little bit of tunnel vision when you speak with people sure. in the, the short-term rental industry. And I understand it's such a specialized kind of management strategy that you need that focus. But there is a lot that you can lose track of if you don't think about what the competition is up to. So while I'm going to speak about the difference, the first thing that I want to flag is that the average person who uses a short-term rental probably uses competitive forms of lodging too. So we do see differences between the people who use short-term rental and those who don't. But when I talk about short-term rental guests or short-term rental users, always keep in mind they are not super category loyal. These are people who are adventurous travelers. They're open to a lot of different categories that work for them. That doesn't mean you don't still need to kind of fight or compete to keep them engaged with the category and give them offers that help them stay with the category. I want to stop you there. So when I hear the hotel CEOs saying up on stage or on their earnings calls that they think their customer is not staying in short-term rentals. Does that not hold water? That doesn't quite hold water. One of my biggest pet peeves after looking at the data is when I hear people spoken about as either a short-term rental guest as if that's their entire travel persona or a hotel guest as if that's their entire travel persona. There, sure, there are people you can find who are pretty loyal to one, but I would say you have to consider that there are many people out there who are hybrid users. And when you're 
when you're marketing, when you are putting out offers, when you are pricing, when you are thinking about competitive properties within your area, you have to keep in mind that there are a significant number of people who are open to different categories and hotels need to keep that in mind too. And you've seen them in some ways kind of move into that with either offering different kinds of properties that are short-term rentals or highlighting properties that have things like kitchens and multiple bedrooms, or you see things like Hilton's campaign last year where they deliberately called out some of the issues with um, some of the issues with short-term rentals that are not managed quite as well as the standard that the industry would like to go for. So hotels are acknowledging it, but I think that there tends to be this vision where people want to think that a customer, a traveler is either married to one category or another. That's not really the story that the data tells us. People want to use the best category available to them for a given stay. That doesn't make them a loyalist. So maybe getting into the differences then about those travelers is and is what you're saying that they're the same, so there aren't differences? Or is there something that if, if I'm a short-term rental host, like how should I be thinking about the either the avatar or what is the typical traveler that's choosing our category? Sure. So with all that preamble about how you have to think about the competition, I do have to say that when we look at some of our studies that measure travel behavior year over year, we do see that there are some major differences between the people who use the short-term rental category and those who don't. So a few highlights about them, the people who use short-term rentals, they tend to lean a little bit younger. They also importantly tend to have this higher median income. The median income for a short-term rental guest is between 75 to 99,000 US. And then for the non-short-term rental guests, it's more like 50 to 74,000 in terms of annual household income. And that's, that's a pretty significant difference. That means that we see higher spending power from those short-term rental users, whether it's because the category is filtering them out because of some higher ADRs or because that just tends to be the the type of traveler who wants to choose that category is a subject that we can speculate on. But important to keep in mind that they have higher income and along with that comes experience with other categories that give them some higher standards of hospitality and some higher expectations. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Another one is that the short-term rental users actually are more frequent travelers. So on average, the someone who used a short-term rental in our study in the past year took 3.9 leisure trips, while someone who didn't use a short-term rental only took three. So that's for each short-term rental guest, there's one extra leisure trip a year. That means they're kind of these more frequent, more avid travelers, a little more enthusiastic, and a little more capable also of taking more trips a year. And another thing that you might not be super surprised by is also more likely to work remotely and stay for a little bit longer than some of the people who didn't use short-term rentals. So definitely still a very important category for that remote work, digital nomad kind of category. So and obviously that's been a interesting trend over the last couple of years. Like, do you have the data sort of going back through time and can speak to how any of these have changed? Like is the digital nomad thing just a 
sort of post-pandemic thing, or do you guys actually see that pre-pandemic? Is the higher income and just a post-pandemic thing? And that pre-pandemic, it was just people looking for cheaper stays and sort of was geared more towards a lower-end traveler. And have any of these changed that you can tell? So the way I describe the trend with remote work is that you have to think of COVID not as the cause of the remote work trend, but the catalyst for it. Because when we look at how short-term rental users were behaving, even in 2019, there was a reasonable percentage of people who were using rentals to work remotely even then. Obviously, with all the changes that happened to office culture and to work culture during COVID, there was a lot more capability to work remotely. And you saw a lot of people taking advantage of that. And that's going to calm down as more people have office mandates or in-person mandates. But I would say that the best way to think about it is see, see COVID as the catalyst and something that really accelerated that use of the remote work category. But don't think that just because COVID has died down that that trend is over per se, because it was happening before COVID and it's going to keep happening after. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm not sure if you listened to um, Airbnb's earnings call last night as we're recording this. It's on a Thursday and Airbnb sort of released their financials, which are next expected and, and were great. But something he called out uh, was their upcoming winter release and how one of the focuses around that release is going to be around reliability and how one of the major reasons why guests don't choose short-term rentals is because the lack of perceived reliability in terms of what you're going to get. When you sort of look at your research and the reasons why people choose short-term rentals or hotels, are there any big ones that really stand out to you of that and lead to the different choices among guests? Yeah. So we, we do see what Airbnb describes reflected in our data as well. And that's not to say that the short rental users in our studies haven't had some very positive experiences in short-term rentals. The issue is more that on the supplier or the management side, there are so many players without consolidation with those big brand managers that a lot of times when you book any individual property, you don't quite know what to expect with that one. So that's part of the issue. Not that there aren't plenty of positive experiences under the belt, but that you just never know what you're going to get with this category because there's so much fragmentation in terms of who's running it. So that being said, we find that some of the things that drive the short-term rental users more to the category are things like home-like feel, are things like being able to be in a place with more character, a little more integrated with the community, and especially with longer stays to things like the multiple bedrooms, the kitchen, the laundry, that does become very important. Now, where we see kind of uh, partiality to hotels is with some of the service standards and some of the consistency markers that come with that hotel space and some of the really established and consolidated brands that also go along with that hotel space. So things like professionalization, things like service standards, things like expectations that a property will help you with other parts of your trip, like your tours or activities 
are winners in terms of the hotel category being perceived as the more competent or reliable category for those types of things. People expect hotels will be more professional, more attentive, have more access to food and beverage right by the property, and even at times be more safe, which is obviously a really important kind of core requirement for properties where someone is going to stay. So there really is kind of a heated push and pull that goes on between those two categories because as important as it can be to be in a place that feels unique and interesting and integrated with a neighborhood, when people are on a type of trip where they feel like they really need to rely on some of those higher service standards, hotels can emerge as a really competitive choice. So I understand all that and that makes a lot of sense. Where does sort of price and value play into the equation? So I I do like to separate those two things out because short-term rentals can provide really great value in terms of the the cost per square foot, you could say. That's That's not the only type of factor that people take into account. So I I see short-term rental hosts and managers boast all the time that they're the better value in terms of kind of the cost per square foot of the property because you'll get more space with the short-term rental. That's not wrong, but the first thing I would say is you do need to think about the total price that if you do charge less per square foot, but your ADR in total is still much higher than hotels in the area, you still can get undercut by those hotels for that because people are not always thinking about it in terms of square footage, especially if they're not in a group. And then the other thing about value that's really interesting is that value is more It's a very important concept across tiers. You see people, whether they're staying in a budget or a mid-tier or a luxury property, really hold up value as an important aspect of the stay and an important decision driver about where they're going to stay. And that's really a picture of how hard your money is working for you and not just how much you're spending. So that's driven not just by some of the technical aspects of the stay, like the bedroom count or the square footage, but also some of those intangibles or more emotional experiences that come along with it in terms of how comfortable it is, how well they feel taken care of, what the service standards are like. Value is a place where you get into some of the real emotional perceptions of the property and the full hospitality experience. Yeah, I know when I'm traveling with my family, it's not just the amount I'm paying for the rooms, but also like total expense of like being able to cook meals at home, be able to do breakfast and lunch and like buy a bunch of beer and put in the fridge and not have to uh, use the hotel bar and get charged $8 for every drink I want to have. Like, it it seems like the value plays not only into the night and cost per night, but also in the total trip cost of what I might have to spend while I'm on vacation. Does that resonate? Yeah, and I think that I think that people take all sorts of those factors into account, and especially especially with group trips, that's a place where they do start to think more about how advantageous it is to have those extra kinds of spaces, to have the kitchen, to have the grill, 
to have maybe a pool or a hot tub you can use yourself and not just ones that are split with an entire property. But I think that one of the interesting things about value is that it comes also in in a lot of the little things. And when you're thinking about how to increase value for guests, whether you consider yourself a luxury property or not, I think it's really interesting to look at how the luxury hotel sector has approached increasing perceptions of value in their properties because they found a lot of little touch points to give little ads that don't necessarily cost a lot to them, but make a guest feel very pampered. So whether it's something just like the way that they fold the towels extra nicely with the with the swans on the bed, or whether it's something like providing a bottle of champagne that they maybe paid wholesale price for $7 and put in a bucket of ice in your room, or got a luxury brand for the toiletries that cost them a little more with a marginal price, but make you feel extra pampered when you're in that room. They've really mastered the idea of having a lot of little touch points where they increase their investment a little, but then the emotional perception of what that means for the guests coming in is really impactful. And they feel they feel a lot more taken care of by having so many of those small touch points where there was just a little extra investment. So that doesn't necessarily mean you need to think about those exact standards or spending the exact amounts of money that they spend in luxury hotel management, but take the lesson on how they have really integrated the feeling of making guests feel more cared for, more pampered in a lot of different areas of the hospitality experience. I was going to ask you about that because it's, I feel like a tough thing for short-term rentals going after the higher tier where like you look at a standard, maybe upscale hotel room and luxury or even ultra luxury hotel room. If you're just looking at a photo, it might be hard to tell the difference, but in terms of price, there could be substantial difference. And a lot of that goes around services, additional things that those hotels add to make a guest feel really taken care of. So, and I know you, you know more than most about this. So if you were talking to someone wanting to get into luxury short-term rental space, like how should they be thinking about and what they could add extra to get additional ADR out of their sort of luxury home? Sure. I think the first good piece of news about what we've seen in the research from the luxury short-term rental users is that they have a lot of optimism in terms of what the category can become and a lot of optimism that it can be just as a luxurious experience to stay in a high-tier short-term rental compared to a high-tier hotel. And they also really appreciate that short-term rentals offer this kind of unique character, unique history, because to a certain extent, their their expectations are already set for what a luxury hotel will look like. And short-term rentals can offer this really non-generic luxury experience, which is a really prized thing when you can do it well, to give something that feels unique, interesting, that has its own story. There's a level of exclusivity that can really come with that. 
On the other hand, there are some areas where short-term rentals are not necessarily as developed as those luxury hotels with what they're offering. And that can be an issue because we see in the research that the people who use the high-tier short-term rentals for their stays tend to also have really high-tier hotel experience as well. They know that brand landscape, they know the expectations, and they know what the hotels are good at. And where the short-term rentals can lack are in things like the parts of the service where, for example, they offer extra amenities or having affiliate relationships with other types of tours or other parts of that travel experience outside of just that exclusive stay. Remember that the luxury hotel that they would stay at in a competitive setting is going to have a concierge. They're going to have someone who can get them a dinner reservation, who can call them a car when they need to go to the airport. They're going to have relationships with local tour operators. And if somebody wants to go see something the next day, they'll be able to make a quick call and get them set up for a tour. That's an area where we don't quite see as much development in the short-term rental space. There are companies that are working on it. And I've definitely seen more players emerge who are trying to offer these services trying to get things more competitive, but that's an area where there's still a bit of work to be done with that short-term rental landscape. Yeah. And how much do you think the lack of brands in the short-term rental space impact it? Because like, as you know, like there's so many developed hotel brands that have been around for decades. And, and I know you've studied property managers and sort of the impact that they have on the industry. So like companies like and Vacasa and V-Trips and Avant Day, like Wander, some are clearly building brands within the short-term rental space, but not nearly the sort of brand recognition and, and quality associated with them as some of the larger hotel brands. And then you've got Airbnb, which has created its own brand in itself. So do you have a sense of like, do any of these brands resonate with guests or and is branding something that's going to work in the short-term rental space? I'm optimistic about it in the long-term more so than the short-term. I mean, Airbnb obviously has very strong recognition, but at the end of the day, they're not the ones who are running the properties. And so when it comes to what you feel you can rely on for a really high-ticket purchase, you don't just want to trust the intermediary. You also want to have a fair bit of trust in whoever is running the property, which is partially, by the way, why we see that the short-term rental users tend to look at reviews even more so than the people who don't use the short-term rentals. You know, you have to use something for supplemental information if you don't have that piece of information that's coming from the brand itself. We have measured in our studies recognition of major short-term rental brands like Vacasa or Evolve or Sonder. And the short-term rental users, they didn't have great awareness of it, but I also think that brand recognition is really a marathon and not a sprint. And so it's extremely possible that as we keep tracking this year over year, that we're going to see some kind of awareness increase. But even with people who are playing all their cards right, if a brand plays all their cards right in terms of recognition and publicity, 
it takes time. Airbnb didn't exactly do this overnight and the management players aren't going to be able to do it overnight either in terms of building up brand recognition or reputation. So we have to figure out a plan for the interim as well. The long-term plan can obviously be increased brand visibility, increased brand awareness and positive associations with it. I love that idea. But realistically, there's probably a multi-year timeline that gets attached to that, even if it follows all the right milestones and is done successfully. So we do have to think about what happens in the interim between now and when widespread recognition comes, if it comes. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that in short-term rental reviews, because Billy, I split my time staying between hotels and short-term rentals pretty evenly. And like when I'm staying in a short-term rental, I feel like I read every single review. When I stay at a hotel, I can't remember the last time I read a review. Is that yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because you need you need a source for information when a property is being run by someone you've never heard of or brand that you've never heard of. And you're looking for clues in the reviews about what the experience is like, what the host is like. With a hotel, you probably have certain boilerplate standards, even about things like what's included with the room, what's included with the property, what communication is going to be like, what you do if something happens or something goes wrong. With a short-term rental, in some ways, even if you're experienced with the category, it's still kind of a new experience every time you stay in a new one. So people are looking for more sources of information when it comes to that decision-making process. Yeah, that makes sense. So, and as you know, the economic uncertainty is definitely out there. Like, are we going to go into recession? Are we not? And I feel like you guys have had some research around how that might impact future traveler plans and like how, as an operator, I should be thinking about how people might react to a recession in the future. Can you can you share what you guys found there? Yeah. So, I'll preface it also by saying that I'm not I'm not an economist, so I can't speak exactly to what will happen with the economy itself, but what I can speak to is consumer behavior and consumer intention and how they react if something does happen. So, consider this your kind of emergency toolkit for what <laughs> what to expect if if changes happen. The first piece of good news that I have about the current base of short-term rental users is that they actually tend to be more bullish about their own future plans and their own future trips than people who did not stay in short-term rentals. And we asked them in research about their plans through summer of 2024. So that's kind of the window that, that I'm speaking about in terms of their intentions. But they have higher intentions than the non-short-term rental users to do things like increase the total number of leisure trips they go on, and that's both domestic and international. They have more plans to increase their budgets, more plans to increase the length of their trips, and more plans to increase the, the class of their accommodation or the star rating of the, the accommodation they're using. So that's an initial piece of good news, and that might also be fueled by the fact that short-term rental users had higher median incomes to begin with. So they might not come in with some of the same fears of people who had to budget a little more in order to 
get on some of these vacations and afford some of these leisure trips. So they're coming in from a position of a little more economic comfort. And you see that optimism really reflect in terms of the travel plans that they want to have. So that's the first piece of good news is truly they don't want to travel less. It's not the intention. It's not the best case. And we're also still coming out of that feeling of being uh, travel repressed during the pandemic. And people don't like the idea of having to stop traveling again. It wasn't a pleasant experience in 2020, 2021, and it wouldn't be a pleasant experience if it happened because of economic constraints. So for all sorts of reasons, it's not the intention. However, an interesting thing about how people intend to adjust their spend if they are in times of economic stress and if they do have to change their spending is that the top things people said they were most likely to do is take fewer trips overall or travel during off season when they could get better prices. So I would pay attention to what you're offering during off season and how you're marketing during off season if this is something you're concerned about. One thing that I would not expect quite as much is for people to slide back in terms of the tier of where they're staying. There's really a phenomenon that happens where once people are used to a certain level of comfort, they do not want to move backwards. So if you are, let's say you consider yourself a mid-tier property and you're wondering what's going to happen if recession hits or if just wallets get even tighter or inflation gets worse... I wouldn't quite expect for the people who are staying in the four to five star properties to all of a sudden all come and start frequenting the mid-tier properties because they get kind of stuck in their ways and they're... <laughs> Didn't you just tell me though, that they wanted to get it to a higher tier when things are good though? Right. right. So <laughs> people want to move up and not backwards. Like that, once they hit a level of comfort with hospitality, they're really happy there. So they would rather travel during off season or do something like travel to a destination that's cheaper overall, stay in a property that's still their level of comfort, then they would be to move back to being in a budget property. So that's one of the first things that I would think about. Consider your customer base to be still your customer base. Those mid-tier travelers either want to go up or they want to stay in the same place. Same with the upscale travelers. They don't want to move back but they will do things like try to travel at different times, maybe try to go to places that they think of as cheaper overall, maybe even do things like take a shorter trip uh, where you might see decreased length of stay. But I would say that people don't really want to want to move between those comfort classes unless they're moving up. Okay, so there is some version of like quality inflation that happens as you sort of... <laughs> Get older, your income goes down, you stay in nicer properties. Uh, and once you reach that level, it's, it's really hard it's to go too back. It's comfortable, Jamie. It's, <laughs> people get too comfortable, and it, it can be a really difficult experience to go from staying in a property someone might consider five-star in terms of tier, not in terms of reviews. It can be difficult to go from that back to the mid-tier and so what we see is that people are more likely to just take fewer trips over the year when it comes to what happens if economic times get more stressful. They're more likely to take fewer trips and stick with the places that they feel really comfortable in than they are to try to make more trips work by decreasing or um, 
kind of moving towards the mid-tier or the budget tiers of accommodations. That lifestyle creep is a really strong, really strong phenomenon that can affect hospitality choices. Yeah. So maybe on the marketing side, if you are on the budget or economy side, it's not necessarily getting people to reach down, but maybe getting new first-time travelers, younger travelers uh, that haven't started their sort of ascent yet and getting them to come to your properties instead of trying to appeal to higher-end travelers that may be thinking about spending less, but spending less might not necessarily mean paying less per night. Yeah, absolutely. And also really trying to take advantage of the off-season marketing and pricing appropriately for off-season as much as you can. People are recognizing more of those shoulder seasons and off-seasons as an opportunity to travel in a way that's a little more budget efficient, I would say. And so know that customers are thinking about those, kind of getting creative with the opportunities they want to take to either travel travel during off-season or go to places that feel like cheaper destinations overall because they want their level of comfort, but they'll be kind of creative in times of economic duress in terms of figuring out how they can get that level of comfort when their budgets are a little more constrained. Well, that is great advice and information for, for everyone. I know you've got a lot of research that you put out. I know you've got things that you can share with the audience. Maybe this would be a good time for you to talk about sort of where to find your research, where to and find out my things coming from Focus, right? Absolutely. So we publish research that's available for syndicate subscribers and for a la carte purchases. We do kind of pulse studies of the travel industry every year that include insights on short-term rentals. That's called our Consumer Travel Report. And then next year, we are doing a major deep dive into the short-term rental space. We do it every few years where we really study it in a holistic way. We study it from the consumer side, from the host and property management side. And so there will be opportunities for additional research access there. And there's also sponsorship opportunities for people who really have a need for a lot of data, a lot of insight, or just some custom help with understanding how the research can affect your business decisions. We have options available for those people as well. And then we also put out short-term rental sizing data on pretty annual basis, I would say. That gives a lot of information in terms of how the market is expected to grow. Yeah. And I, I know at AirDNA, we provide a lot of data to help support that effort for you guys. And we're uh, love partnering on that sort of research. Yeah, we love this collaboration. I'm glad that people can learn a little more about how we collaborate through the podcast also, because behind the scenes, we're working together a lot. And I don't think people always, always kind of see it on the front end. Yeah. Well, I'm so sad. I'm missing your conference this year. I was there last year. It was my first focus, right? Unfortunately, um, I'm in Bar or fortunately, fortunately, I'm in Barcelona right now. I'm taking a vacation with my uh, wife around Spain next week. So not going to be able to make it, but look forward to coming in future years. And is there anything else you want to share with the audience before we sign off? Um, that's my 
that's my basic my basic pitch. <laughs> you can add me or message me with any questions, Madeline List on LinkedIn or mlist at focusright.com. And come check out our research at focusright.com. Or if you're interested in learning more about this in the event space and really kind of understanding more about how short-term rentals fit into that wider travel space. We have amazing events in both in the US and Europe every year. This next one's coming up in November in Hollywood, Florida and check out our events too. Awesome. So great to chat, Madeline. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.